Welcome to the Ponder a New podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and this is the final episode of our second season where we've been looking at the Book of Acts and discovering the joy of community and reflecting on this early church uh, and what they were like uh, for each other. Now, we're not going to be covering all the Book of Acts. We'll, we'll save a bunch of the Book of Acts for another study, but this will conclude this portion of it. And this week, we're going to be thinking about and learning about the first martyr in the church, the first person who died for their faith, and this is Stephen. And I've actually brought in a guest to talk to us about persecution of Christians around the world, and in the end, we'll swing back to uh, the American context. So unfortunately, the Christian community wasn't always and isn't always loved and received by the world, and that's part of the story as well that we're going to reflect on together today. So without further ado... Last time, if you remember, we met a man named Stephen, who was one of the first deacons in the church. And Stephen goes on, and uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. It goes on. Then they secretly, these are the people listening to him, instigated some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so they set up false witnesses, and he asked to go speak before the council. And then Stephen, in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, really does a whole summary of the Old Testament, pointing out uh, Israel's infidelity and stubbornness to to God. And finally, he concludes, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed the one who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones who have received the laws ordained by angels, ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. Well, then they actually uh, attack Stephen, and they end up stoning him. Uh, but as uh, it, it ends, Stephen, really similar to what Jesus does on the cross in verse 59, While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he died, and Saul, who would later become Paul, approved of their killing him. So the first martyr of the church is Stephen. And in fact, the word martyr in Greek just meant to give your witness or one who gave testimony in court. But so many Christians were persecuted for their faith and ultimately died as they gave their witness that they confessed Jesus as Lord, that the ancient church actually changed the meaning of this Greek word to mean uh, one who suffers ultimately dies for their faith. So I have invited with me today a friend of mine, Nick Todd, and Nick has uh, served both doing mission work overseas but also now as somebody who works within a congregation where he strengthens and accompanies uh, the missionaries that that church partners with really all over the world. And so I couldn't think of a better person who might have uh, a sense of where persecution is happening today. And uh, yeah, so we're going to reflect on what it looks like sort of globally and then sort of at the end maybe think a little bit more about what's happening within the the context of the United States. So, uh, Nick, if there's anything else you'd like to introduce about yourself, but then again, you can just share, 
yeah, sh share with us your sense of sort of where persecution is or isn't happening in the world. Yeah, thanks for the introduction, Rob. Uh, you're absolutely right. I, I was fortunate to serve 10 years in East Asia, and then I have been back in the States working in a uh, congregation here in, in mobilization to mobilize people to those places. And part of that job is I still get to work with national believers all over the globe and connect them with those people in our context who want to serve globally. And you even just got back from, from overseas, just even getting to be with some people who are doing mission work. That's right. I was in Spain. Uh, part of it was walking the Camino de Santiago, and another part of it was, was sitting with uh, Spanish believers and hearing their stories and their desire to, to study scripture and talking to missionaries that are there. And what, what do those partnerships look like? It was, it was a real gift for me to hear those testimonies. Wow. Great. So again, where, when you think about it, you sort of again have these uh, mission partners all over the the world, where are some places in the world right now, 2021, where there is, you would say, yeah, no, that's, that's persecution of, of Christians that's happening? The, the biggest one that comes to mind, and I think everyone might say, oh, yeah, that makes sense, would, would be North Korea. Okay, North not a, in some ways surprising, but really, yeah, not, yeah, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Right, so uh, North Korea has, has, I would say, systematically, they've, they've created something so that people who are Christians, well, one, they will likely never thrive um, in any sort of community, but uh, there is such oppressive systems that, uh, a couple of examples, um, husband and wife who, they've been married for years, they don't, they don't learn about each other's Christian faith or following Jesus until years into their marriage. So yeah, so you, that, that's, we're always learning about our partners in life, but 15 years in, you finally discover this person also has the hope of resurrection. I mean, I can imagine how powerful and overwhelming that would be for somebody. Right, so imagine a husband and wife who learn this about each other, but because of the systems that are in place to prevent such expression of faith, um, they send their kids to, to school, and in the school systems, uh, the teachers are working within a realm where they create the, an opportunity for the children to tell the teachers about any sort of level of faith, faith expression. And so if the child tells these stories to their teacher and then the teacher reports it to local authority, well, now the parents have just been outed by the child their own child, which the, the child may not understand the implications all, of all of this, but it's an incredible systematic effort to, to prevent any sort of expression outside of what the official party line is. Wow. What kind of, what kind of family environment is that where you can't really communicate even with each other? Well, what you're bringing up, and maybe this could segue into other things, is that... Um, persecution of Christianity it is in some ways it may be just like a laser light coming down on Christians but it sounds like it's often in environments in which there is just a lot of persecution and oppression going on as well absolutely absolutely the uh, another example might be in in India so it's very much connected to the political system but uh, in, in India a, a Hindu extremist would say that uh, to be Indian is to be Hindu. So if, 
if they meet you and learn that you are not Hindu, then you will immediately be oppressed on a much larger scale. The, uh, the, the pandemic, the, the COVID-19 has exposed a lot within that realm because in India, there were a lot of support measures. There were ways where you had to register yourself, you had to stand in long lines, you had to say who you were and what you believed in order to get food provisions. So, okay, so let's just be clear here. So India is a majority Hindu country, but there's a significant, huge Muslim population. Yes. And the Muslim and sort of Hindu go, really, that's like historically violent for centuries. Yes, it is. And Christians are sort of this minor player on the side, but they sort of end up also then sort of as collateral sort of damage in the persecution, where now suddenly I don't get food in this COVID pandemic line because I'm not a Hindu. That's right. And you had to identify yourself in that manner. So imagine denying Christ as you stand in that line to get food. It's, it's, it's a totally different way to count the cost of what it means to be a believer. So as you would have to choose today, do I deny myself as a Christian or do I starve? Yeah. Which, which is better for God's glory, that I live to see another day or another week or that I deny Christ? Right. Uh, another example might be the Maldives, which I, I like that one. I've never been. It's a luxury getaway. Um, but uh, they will proudly claim to be 100% Muslim. Now, in that environment, conversion to being a Christ follower can mean losing your national citizenship. And if you lose your national citizenship, there's a high likelihood that you will lose job, you will lose any educational opportunity, you'll, you'll lose all of the government structure that exists in order for your good and well-being. What I'm hearing then is that you can have a sort of a, a religiously blind uh, government that just sort of oppresses all religions. You can have a sort of an explicitly sort of religious state, but you can also have a place like India that at one point was a pluralistic democracy that by the way people voted is moving itself out of becoming a pluralistic democracy. So it's not, it's not like one governmental formula uh, protects you forever against this. That, and, and it doesn't sound like it's always just Christians. It's, it's, it's a variety sort of of people across the globe who are persecuted yeah, absolutely. Uh, for the faith. So I uh, lived in East Asia for about 10 years. And a lot of my uh, friends, because I worked in a Muslim community, I have, I have ached with them as they have communicated with me that their minarets and their domes and their mosques have been torn down or bulldozed out of, out of uh, religious persecution. And my Christian brothers and sisters, yes, their churches have been, crosses have been removed. Uh, any religious expression is gone. It's been whitewashed, so you can't even tell a church or a mosque was ever there. Wow. One thing you were... Um you had mentioned to me another time, and then I want to sort of maybe keep digging deeper, though, is it wasn't just religious buildings, which is terrible, but even uh, restaurants that used to serve the equivalent of kosher for Muslims. Hal That's right. So uh, halal. So in my environment, all the restaurants that were a halal restaurant would have on the exterior of the restaurant just a sign, a saying that would say, well, we are halal. Well, what, that was one of the very first things to leave as local government decided to remove any sort of religious expression. Wow. So that means as a community, as people are trying to go out to eat, they can't really just walk down the street and look up and know immediately whether it's a place that, that um, complies with their religious convictions. 
all sorts of craziness. I imagine that must have been so strange, though. So here you are, a Westerner. So you're, I mean, you're an outsider to everybody. And then you're there to really sort of uh, prayerfully engage with people that hopefully there could be a, a strengthening and a flourishing of a Christian community. But now you're seeing people of another religion who are persecuted. What, must, what was that like to sort of tell Americans that you were empathetic to Muslims who are being persecuted? I'm not sure I ever used exactly those words to say <laughs> that. Um, because then I, to a degree, would become a threat to those Americans. Um, based on the intimacy I had with those friends. Like, uh, they, they could hear how my heart was breaking for wow. them. Because it's just, I mean, there's always sort of been this, this tension between sort of the home office and, and sort of people in the field who are well more aware of how complex things are. But that's just a really fast. So what, I, what I'm hearing is that all around the world, um, in various kinds of governments from different religions, so Hindu, Muslim, state, all sorts of ways in which the freedom of religion, and in particular, or as a collateral, the ability of Christians to worship in peace. What about the sort of the, the outsourcing of uh, persecution to sort of social groups? So in other words, you know, let's say you're, a, you're in a society that everybody sort of celebrates certain holidays, and you decide not to, uh, even though they don't turn you into the government, what's that like for Christians who are converting to Christianity and they still get to keep their job, but their whole sort of social world has changed? So imagine in, uh, it, there's religious festivals all over, the, all over the world. And so it was always a unique work to sit down and talk with these either uh, Muslim background believers, or it might be Hindu background believers, or, 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 or Buddhist background believers, as they struggle with this festival that I'm about to celebrate. I'm, I'm about to go home to my family who is not believing, and they will celebrate this festival. How do I, how, how do, I do that and, and still able to say I'm a follower of Jesus? Where is that line? And that was, that was the difficult task of trying to contextualize, to figure out uh, it is okay for them to pray. It's okay for them to kneel and pray. It's okay for them to, and this is one that uh, is, is, is scriptural, people would, would face Jerusalem and pray. Mm-hmm. And so depending on the input that was in their life, they would draw lines that would completely put them as an outsider to the family, physically, because they would not participate in some things. I felt like a lot of my role was to sort out with them, with their levels of conviction, where can they participate? Where can they still be with family, where they can experience the family things without violating anything in Scripture? Yeah, I can, just as you're speaking, I can tell that this is something that is a real uh, energizing point for you, is working with people to try to figure out within their context uh, what does it mean to be Christian, and where is that line between syncretism and just a sort of an accommodation to survive, uh, and uh, where might there be something that increases? It just sounds and like sometimes it's, that line is really, really thin. Yeah, and so yeah. it's it's um, it's working with them as best we can for them to, to 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 study Scripture and ask the Lord to speak to them through Scripture and through the Holy Spirit, 
to uh, to know where that line is about where they can participate. And then, of course, you, you talk with them, you debrief them. What did, what happened? What did they experience? Um, how is it impacting them? What are the relationships still like? Do they still do they still have any level of respect with their family after such a festival time? Yeah, that just oh wow. So one of the things um, that I'm hearing is that these people who are suffering for their faith, they're actually giving you a witness. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and um, do you think it's possible to really share your faith with somebody if you don't have any accompanying suffering? Ooh. I, man, I wish, I wish, I wish it was possible. But it kind of comes down for me to this line of what are you actually living for? And so if you have experienced no levels of suffering, um, and, and there's, at the risk of being, being pedantic, uh, I mean, I, I do break down persecution. But if, if, you, if you've experienced no levels of questioning, if you've experienced no levels of questions of what are you and what are you living for and why are you so weird, if you haven't experienced that, then what are you actually living for? Maybe, maybe you're really just part of the culture, which there, there's great stuff in the culture. Yeah, there is great yeah. stuff. Uh, I think of our own culture here. Man, what a heritage heritage of faith but that does not necessarily mean that you're following christ just because you're on the culture train doesn't mean yeah you're following jesus yeah no i think about that too just on a softer level i've i've always you know to me the people that are the most powerful witnesses to christian faith are those who are often um there's famous examples like bonhoeffer but just in my own life of people that have really gone through really difficult times and have kept the faith right and so i think there is a way in which sharing the gospel it seems forever bound up with the cross please <laughs> which is in our lives somehow so so if that's sort of it that, that so again what i'm hearing is that christians all over the world are suffering in various ways in, in different contexts but that that suffering um in some cases is so extreme that it just makes christianity almost impossible right but in many cases it's it's actually acting as a sort of an agent to really sort of make people take their faith seriously and then form these communities of people on the fringes who somehow have to relearn a, a new kind of way to be a fictive family with each other. Right. Do you see sort of really strong communities in some of these sort of places where there's some sort of Christian marginalization? I think some people do draw a line. They, they, they are very choosy about their community because of risk involved. Mm. But I also see them taking great risks at the same time. And once they're in that community, once it's established, once they have some, some shared experiences, then that is a group that will be forever bonded. Yeah, the, the tightness. Uh, without blood, without blood. But uh, I suppose I could say it's because of the blood of Christ that they're bonded. The, the, yeah, I think, yeah, they sort of become like many of these New Testament communities. Right. They, they're not blood-related, but suddenly they are blood-related. The, maybe, so let's turn it sort of then pivot back to, to the American context um, you know, for a long time in, within the United States, Christianity, especially in the last probably 70 to really sort of post, sort of World War II on, um, 
longer than that, but really that time period, Christianity enjoys like a real central place within the culture. Yes. And, in, and then for various reasons that we are increasingly becoming marginalized, um, or the church is no longer sort of the center of a community in the way it was. Right. And, and what that has done um, is for many people, this produces an incredible amount of cultural anxiety that we're not sort of at the center of, of life. How do we distinguish between sort of we're no longer, you know, the majority of the people who are active practicing Christians and we're actually a persecuted minority? What, what might be some markers along the way uh, to sort of help us understand what the difference in just being, again, a, a no longer the majority and a persecuted minority? That's good. My... Uh... When someone comes to me in my, in my U.S. context right now and says that they're being persecuted, honestly, on the inside, my thought is, no, you're not. Not, not like I know persecution. Not <laughs> like some of my friends know persecution. Yeah, you, and, didn't and have, you didn't have your signs ripped off your building this week by the state. Yeah. Exactly. But, but that does not mean that what they're experiencing is not true. Hmm. And so I don't, I don't break things down for them necessarily. But uh, there, are, there are levels of persecution, and I would, uh, levels, I would say stages. There's stages mm -hmm. of persecution. And I think most of us at some level have experienced a style of persecution, whether it's religious or not, with disinformation. Mm -hmm. So that means that maybe a rumor is started about you, one that you're not really able to defend. And so I will tell this group over there about uh, Pastor Rob. And then all of a sudden, such a movement happens where everyone thinks, something about Pastor, Pastor Rob that, that you don't have an opportunity to defend. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's junior high. <laughs> it's, it's, it's junior but it happens to us as adults. And, and it can happen around faith issues. Yeah, Disinformation is something that mm -hmm. is, is kind of that, that first level of persecution. And I think that's where just about everybody is in the United States context. Uh, a next stage would be uh, discrimination. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think I've ever been discriminated against. I, I know that's different for people in the United States, but, but who I am, my demographic, I just haven't experienced it. And so for me, I, stopped, I, I just stopped right there. There's a lot of disinformation that exists in this world, in the United States, about me. And, and to a degree, I just well, I mourn it and I grieve it because I don't have an opportunity to speak into it. But I, I have not been discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And, and I, some people in the U.S. context have been discriminated against. But I don't think me, and I don't necessarily think you, Rob. And I don't know all your stories, though. Um, and then the, the third level, I would say, is, is violent persecution. Which, yeah, is not happening within our context. I mean, you could argue that there have been, you know, actually black churches that have been burned down. But that has nothing, that, that's a whole other issue. That's right. And I, I, that would be a level of... of Oh my gosh, persecution. Yeah, Absolutely. Wow. That, that probably started with disinformation. And then it, it worked its way up discrimination, discrimination. And then it worked its way up. And then it, yeah, it, then it became up. violent persecution. Yeah. So the, um, well, let me, um, so that's really helpful to sort of think about that there sort of is a process that no society is ever eternally protected against persecution. That right. this, you know, societies can become this way. Um, the, the one uh, thing that maybe to sort of wrap it all up then, um, my sense is that you've worked in positions where you didn't have a lot of power to change laws True. overseas. And so the Christians there 
are so far from power that they really have little legal recourse. That, I would say, is, is often true. That's right. Within the American context, there's still this tantalizing thought that as Christians, if we just circled the wagons, we could regain some That's political right. we, we and legal still, power. We circle those wagons. We can continue to influence and change policy, and, and all of a sudden we've just started a movement because we're not so on the fringe. We're, we might be losing something, but we're, we're still a majority, at least culturally. Um, I, that's, that's not the story of my friends. They have no legal recourse if, if they are found out to be Christian. It's just over. So how, um, how can we as Christians... So I'll just give my own bias. I'm, um, I'm not sure. I, I feel it as a deal like of Hezekiah with the Egyptians to sort of protect ourselves. <laughs> Um, and, and I say as somebody who, you know, lives off of uh, the church, and, you know, if church is closed, I'd have to get in their job and, and do other things. But I'm, I'm wondering, what can we learn from our global Christian partners and those who are persecuted beyond a sort of a legal power framework to try to protect ourselves of really how to live as, as potentially a, a minority or even a persecuted minority? That's really good. The... Scripture. Scripture comes to mind. Scripture, uh, ladies and gentlemen, scripture. Uh, first, first Peter. First Peter is a remarkable letter, um, and uh, by the in chapter one, things are things are relatively chill, um, but by chapter four, Nero's lighting Christians on fire, and I I I love it when Peter writes that as he's talking about suffering and persecution, he says there should be no just cause for a Christian suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we can learn from our brothers and sisters across the world that are experiencing violent persecution so that when they are accused of activities that might be illegal but have improved community, that have improved community welfare, that have improved health, that, that means that people are being fed, there, there is no just cause for such suffering. Mm. That is something we can learn. Yeah, because my, my sense is that, you know, Stephen at the end sort of has his hands open and receives the stoning. I'm not, I'm, I'm probably not ready to be stoned to death tomorrow, but my hope is that um, the church in America will not spend all of its efforts circling the wagons, uh, but, but rather thinking how can we actually give a witness and how can we suffer for others in the community? Yeah. Um, and not worry as much about our own buildings and really more about, again, how can we share, to go back to Peter, share the hope that is within us. Um, so, well, thanks again, Nick, for, for coming uh, by today. Uh, thanks uh, for doing a second recording. <laughs> I forgot to press record on the first. Um, but yeah, Nick, could you conclude for us with, with a prayer? For us as a community in this world, Lord, uh, whether it be be here in our context or our brothers and sisters in much, much more difficult ones, God the Father, would you surround us? Would you surround those who are persecuted with your angels of light? Mm. Jesus, would you, would you surround all of us 
with a reminder that your blood has been outpoured. And Spirit, would you empower us with your fire of power to save, to keep, to heal, to protect each day, each night, each life until our journey's end. Amen. Amen. Amen.